It's a joy to be back with you. The last time I was here was in April, and there's been a few changes to your church. There's been a few changes in my life as well. So uh, for those of you that I have not had the pleasure to meet yet, my name is Jonathan Craig. I'm a minister in the Presbyterian Church in America, sister denomination, PCA. Uh, I serve as the capital minister with ministry to state, to the state government here in the capital. I've been doing so for several years. This is my fourth year in the position, but I also serve as a Navy chaplain. I've been a Navy chaplain for 15 years, and I actually just found out this summer I've been selected for promotion to commander, which puts me into the senior leadership of the Navy chaplain corps, which I'm encouraged by and excited for the new responsibility to minister to our younger chaplains and to lead the Navy chaplain corps Uh, in the coming years. As far as ministry to state is concerned, it's been a really busy summer. Some of you know that Grant Payne came and was my first summer intern up in the Capitol. Some of you know him and his family well. Uh, That internship program is now up and running every year. I'll be looking for interns, both male and female, to come up and learn the ropes of ministering in the state government and evangelism and discipleship in that setting. So if you know young men or young women who might flourish in that setting or be interested in that, please reach out to me and let me know. There would be a great opportunity for them to, to learn ministry in that particular type of context. We also have brought on staff uh, what we call a ministry associate, someone who has their bachelor's degree and is working towards a seminary degree. His name is William Carter, and he'll be covering the legislative districts and judicial districts in central Florida. So he lives down near Orlando, and he'll be helping me pursue ministry among the central Florida legislative districts and judicial districts. Florida's so big, I don't have the opportunity to travel all over Florida all year long. So the long-term goal is to have someone in Orlando and cover central Florida and then down in Miami to cover south Florida. And then, of course, I'll be up here in Tallahassee. So, again, if you know someone who might be interested in doing that type of ministry outside of the church in a highly evangelistic, high-stress, high-visibility setting, let me know. I'd be glad to to bring more on to the team. We also have coming, I'm I'm sending it to print this week, a 2024 state government prayer guide for you to be praying for your state leaders. Uh, I'll send some to the church so you can have some. I'll also send a PDF version. So if you're interested in that, I've got a few... uh, brochures back in the uh, foyer here. It's got my contact information in it and tells you a little bit about the ministry. So grab one of those and pass it on to somebody you know in the state government, whether they're in custodial or they're the governor. Let them know that we exist as a, a means to minister to them and to encourage them and their families and their staffs in the gospel of Jesus Christ as they lead our state. It's an exciting time, but it's, it's crazy busy. We're actually in the committee weeks now. There are six committee weeks that lead up to the legislative session, which will begin in the first week of January. This is the time where they debate and prepare all of the legislation that they hope to pass during the session. So uh, we've got a, a week break, and then the week after that, the next committee week rolls in for two more committee weeks. So uh, everybody from all over the state is here. And as you can imagine, it's a zoo in the Capitol. We have lobbyists and then legislatures people from the executive branch, people from the judicial branch. Everybody is in Tallahassee. So it's a, a wild time, but it's also a fruitful time for ministry. I would ask you to pray for two things. Number one is I lead a, a Bible study morning prayer time in the chapel, in the Capitol. If you didn't know, there's a chapel in the Capitol uh, at 9 o'clock every weekday. And uh, it's a great little core group of people, mostly from the governor's executive office. Uh, continue to pray for them and that that would grow. We have anywhere from two to six people every day that that come and we read through a chapter of scripture and pray for one another and pray for the state government. 
And then secondly, uh, as a PCA missionary, I raised my own funds. Thankfully, the Lord has provided extravagantly over the last several years, but it's just that time where next year is going to be a fundraising year. So if you know someone who would like to fund this type of ministry or if you would prayerfully consider it, join us with a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift. That would be very helpful to us, especially as the ministry is expanding to new people. These interns, I'm funding the interns myself as well as uh, the ministry associate. He's out raising funds as well. So anyways, please be in prayer for that as next year will be a heavy fundraising year for me, which will require extra travel and that kind of stuff. Uh, that's enough of an update on me. Let's turn to the scriptures. Psalm 19 is where we are this evening. So I invite you to turn there with me. We'll read the entire psalm together. It's only 14 verses, so don't be afraid. Psalm 19. This is God's holy word. <clears throat> to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Let us pray. Father, this is your word. You've given it to us that we might be strengthened, encouraged, convicted, rebuked, exhorted. We pray that your spirit would do that tonight. That as the words go out, they would not return void, but that they indeed would bear much fruit. In your holy name we pray. Amen. What does the future hold for me? Where will I be in ten years? If I traveled back in time... Could I shake hands with myself? What is the average airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? How much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? How many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll center of a Tootsie Pop? The world is full of questions we may never know the answers to. However, the question I want us to consider tonight is... 
how can I know God? And Psalm 19 answers that question for us. Psalm 19 is in book one of the Psalms. If you didn't know that, the Psalms are five books together, collections of praises and prayers. All of Psalm 1 through 41, nearly, is ascribed to David. So David's the author of almost all of the first book of Psalms, Psalms 1 through 41. And Psalm 19 is one of three so-called Torah Psalms in the Psalter. It's a psalm that delights in and places high emphasis on the law of God. There are three psalms like that. It's easy to remember. It's Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119. 119 and Psalm 119 are all the Torah psalms. So that's where we find ourselves tonight in the second of those so-called Torah psalms. And the central idea of Psalm 19 is that God has made himself known to mankind. And if that's so, and if that's true, then we come to our question, how can I know God? So there are three points I want us to consider. Psalm 19 is nicely outlined in these three points. First, I can know God through his creation in verses 1 through 6. I can know God through his creation. Secondly, I can know God through his word, verses 7 through 11. And thirdly, and maybe surprisingly, I can know God through my sin. Verses 12 through 14, I can know God through his creation, I can know God through his word, I can know God through my sin in the last three verses. So let's consider this first idea that when we consider how we might know God, it's through his creation. Look again at verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork day to day, pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech Nor are their words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Creation exudes the knowledge of its creator. And David focuses specifically on one aspect of creation in this psalm, namely the skies and its luminaries. So in verse 1 we read about the heavens and the skies. Verse 2 we read about day and night. And verses 4 through 6 we read specifically about the sun. Now it makes sense that this is the aspect of creation David might want to focus on. Think about what David's job was before he was king. What was it? He was a shepherd. That's right. So he was outside all the time. And he was well acquainted with the skies, especially at night. He knew the stars, I'm sure. He was well acquainted with constellations and the cycles of the planets and the moon and the sun and during the day. He was well acquainted with those things. So it's a clear example from David's life of how he pondered and considered God in all he did and specifically how he revealed himself. Now, when we think about and speak about God revealing himself to mankind, theologians use this, this term, general revelation, when speaking about what God does in revealing himself through creation. General revelation is the idea that God has made himself known clearly through the things that he has made. And when we talk about the term general, it's general in two ways. First, 
God's revelation of himself is general in the sense that what he reveals about himself is just a general type of knowledge. It's general in nature. It's not very specific as far as creation is concerned. So, for example, if you went out at night and looked up at the stars in the sky, it wouldn't say up in the stars, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You're not going to look through a microscope and see that across the nucleus of a cell. What we do see as we observe nature and the things God has made is that there are things about nature that communicate to us something about who God is, namely that he is a God of power, that he is a God of wisdom, that he is divine by nature. So general revelation is general in that sense. We look at creation and we know general things about God by looking at creation. Secondly, it's general in the sense, as we saw in these verses, that that knowledge goes out to everyone. It goes out in a general sense to everyone. Everyone is aware of that information. Everyone is privy to it. There's no one who can evade or escape the knowledge that creation gives to us that there is a God, that he does exist, and that they communicate certain attributes about God to us. So David makes it exceedingly clear in this first couple of verses that God's revelation is plain. In verse 1, he says that creation declares and proclaims about him. It's not a whisper. It's not a sigh. It's declared and proclaimed. In verse 2, it happens day to day and night after night. It's not only for 15 minutes before dinner or just before the sun sets that we can somehow glean revelation about God from his creation. Over and over, day after day, it is proclaimed. Also in verse 2, it says that this knowledge is poured out and revealed. There's not just a trickle of knowledge out there that we gain from creation about God. In verse 3, we read that it's heard by everyone. The voice of creation is heard by everyone in this room, everyone in this city, everyone who has ever existed has heard the voice of creation calling out about its creator. Verse 4, that voice goes to the end of the world. There's not one nook or crevice or some tiny little island somewhere that's not accessible to this information or knowledge. And finally, David uses in verse 4 through 6 an illustration of the sun coming out and running its course from one end of the skies to the others. That is, there's nothing that's hidden from the sun's light and heat. The same is true about this knowledge from creation. There's nothing or no one that's hidden from this knowledge. So that means that no one will stand before God and say, I didn't know you were there. You didn't make yourself known to me. You should have done more, God, to let me know that you existed. You never showed yourself. That's why in Romans chapter 1, which we read earlier, Paul writes, For what can be known about God is plain to us. And I'm changing the pronoun there from them to us. Because God has shown it to us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that we are without excuse. 
Now, when it comes to viewing and understanding general revelation, mankind has erred in one end of the spectrum to the other. So, for example, those who claim to be atheists deny general revelation outright, that that doesn't even exist. And if it did exist, they deny what it reveals. That is, creation doesn't tell us anything about a god or a creator. Atheism denies that altogether. Or those who claim agnosticism. They're not sure or they don't know if God exists or not. That's a denial of the clarity of general revelation. It's clear when you look at the human body, when you look at the stars of heaven, when you look through a microscope at the microscopic world that exists, that indeed it is clear that there is a creator. Or you think about paganism, which is the worship of creation itself rather than the creator of all things. We have a tendency to err in many directions when it comes to understanding general revelation. And one of the things we do quite often in our modern cultures, we just ignore it altogether. We have screens that we can look at all day without stepping outside. We work in a concealed area where there aren't windows. We, we don't take time to be out in creation and we miss this aspect of what God has done in revealing himself to us. It's a, an easy temptation and trap to fall into by ignoring general revelation itself. Now when we look to creation, it should cause us to be in awe. I mean, if you look at your friends who are believers, what they post on Instagram, you're going to see a sunset and they're going to post Psalm 19 with it, the first couple of verses, right? Oh, the heaven declares the glory of God. Yeah, and that's true. But you see it all the time, right? It should result in us to worship and to desire to know more about this God. So that the man in the jungles of the Congo or the person in the icy Siberia wasteland, when they see creation and know something about a creator, the desire should be there to learn more and know more about this God. That's the same desire it should inculcate in us. The desire to know and to love this God more. The interesting thing about general revelation, however, is that it's only enough information to condemn us. And it's not enough information to save us. So the Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way, Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness and wisdom and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. So the question is, how do we find that knowledge? Creation tells us that there's a God and he exists and tells us something about that God. Where do we go to find out what we need in order to be brought into a right relationship with that God? And that's where David goes next in this psalm. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Now, that's a weird transition, don't you think? He's just spent this time talking about creation and then all of a sudden he just switches over to the law of God. What's going on here? Well, the idea is David's trying to unpack for us how we can know God. We can know him through creation and now we can know him through his word. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, 
enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Now, in distinction from general revelation, theologians call this special revelation. That is what God has specifically revealed about himself through his word, as opposed to through creation. So, for example, the author of Hebrews opens his letter by saying this long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is special revelation, the teachings of which are recorded for us by his apostles in Holy Scripture. The Confession of Faith goes on to continue this. Because general revelation is not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary, necessary unto salvation, therefore it pleased the Lord at many times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare his will unto his church and afterwards to commit the same wholly unto writing. So here's where Psalm 19 gets its designation as a Torah psalm where the author delights in and extols the beauty of God's word. In fact, in these four verses, David describes God's law in ten ways. He says in verse 7 that God's law is perfect. And he says it is sure. You can count on it. That's why Jesus says not one jot or one tittle will pass away of God's law. It's perfect and it's sure. In verse 8 he says it's right. And it's pure. Where can you go to know what is right about God? And tells you what is true about him. It's right and it's pure. In verse 9, it is eternal. It will not pass away. It is true as opposed to all those falsehoods that are spread among mankind. It is righteous. In verse 10, it is more to be desired than gold. And sweeter than honey. Man, if anybody offered you something like that, wouldn't you take it? Man, you would go after that. So why Jesus tells these two parables in Matthew 13. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And that's what David is saying about God's word. Here it is. You want to know God? Here is something that is far greater than the finest gold that you can imagine. It's sweeter to your taste than the most wonderful honey you could ever find. Now the reason God's law is described this way by David is because God's special revelation is far more capable of accomplishing something than his general revelation. So in fact, David lists six things in these four verses that God's law does. 
Verse 7, it revives the soul. That is, it brings life to the soul. That's why Ezekiel talks about in chapter 37 seeing a valley of dry bones and the Holy Spirit comes at his speaking and brings those bones to life. He sees sinews and flesh forming around the bones and they come into the form of a man. That's what the Word of God does for us. That's why Paul describes us as dead in our trespasses and sins in Ephesians chapter 2. We're dead and God's Word brings life. In verse 8, David says, it makes wise the simple. Now that's just not a comment about some buffoon or simpleton who's just a dummy and then becomes smart. That's actually a commentary on the spiritual condition of a person. We're simple, spiritually speaking. But when God's word comes to us and we embrace and love his law, we are made wise, spiritually speaking. You think about the fishermen of Capernaum whom Jesus called to himself to become his disciples. In verse 9, God's word rejoices the heart. You've experienced that before, I'm sure. You've been in a situation where you're in a lot of pain, where you're suffering in some way. You've experienced some sort of tragedy or difficult circumstances. And it was God's word that touched your soul in a way that nobody else could. It's God's word That rejoices the heart. In verse 10, it enlightens the eyes. That's why the man born blind in John chapter 9 says, I was blind, but now I see. Because the word came to him. In verse 11, David says, your law warns your servants. It warns us of how we might flee sin and darkness. And come to the living God and know him. And finally, in verse 11, he says that it rewards those who keep it. There's a promise there for you. That if you keep God's law, there is a reward for you. Think about what Jesus says. When you enter into heaven, it's all the Christian's joy and expectation that they might hear those words from his lips. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You want to know how to hear those words? Keep God's law. Love God's law. Follow God's law. That's what David's saying. You want to know God? Here it is. You can know him through his law. Now all of those things are beautiful and wonderful for us, but consider for a moment what's actually being said here. That the eternal, immortal, Almighty, holy, holy, holy God has made himself known to you. There was a man in one of my former churches who was a Korean War veteran. And one Sunday morning I sat down next to him on the pew and we started to strike up a conversation Small talk at first, but then he just began to tell me about his experiences in Korea and the difficult circumstances he faced there and began to tear up And as he considered those moments and brought them back to mind. And it was a very touching moment for me because I knew in that moment he had made himself known to me in a deep and pure way. And you've had those experiences, I'm sure, with maybe your children or friends or neighbors. And those are beautiful moments. But consider again what David is saying 
the same way in which you felt the special love and joy in that moment of truly knowing something about someone, God is saying, here I am. Let me make myself known to you. And he does it in his word. You want to know God? Here it is. David's making it clear to us. Let's not reject him by ignoring his word. Now, after pondering God's revelation in creation and after seeing his revelation in his word, David now is forced to respond to what God has made known to him. And that's where we come to verses 12 through 14 in our third point, that we can know God through our sin. Look at those verses with me. David asks, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, one of the shows I enjoy watching is Forensic Files. Maybe you've watched Forensic Files before, know a little bit about it, but it's all about how scientists use forensic evidence in crimes to demonstrate and convict the guilty for having done it, and they'll go through all that takes place in pulling forensic evidence from a crime scene and how they analyze it and come to the knowledge of the truth about something. And then a jury is presented with that forensic evidence, which is undeniable that this is the guy who did it. We have his DNA. We have his hair. We, we know it all. It's right here. That's what David's just done for you in one sense in Psalm 19. He said, look around you. Here it is. Here's the evidence. Look around you in creation. Here it is right here. Here's the evidence. Here's how you can know God, how you can love him. And now David himself is confronted with the evidence as he thinks about it. And he's convinced that he must respond in some way. And the way he responds is that he is now keenly aware of his sin. And he begins by asking the question, who can discern his errors? And there's a twofold answer to this question. The first answer is everyone. Who can discern his errors? Everyone can, because in light of God's revelation, the seriousness of our sin becomes painfully obvious. The law makes it clear. It's like a mirror. We hold God's word up to us and we see ourselves for who we really are in light of God's holiness. That's why Isaiah says in chapter 6, Woe is me when he sees God. I am a man undone. I am a man of unclean lips. When he sees the living God... He's painfully aware of his own sin. And that's exactly how David responds to this knowledge. So everyone is aware of their sin. Everyone can discern his errors. The second answer to that question is who can discern his errors? No one. Everyone and no one because none of us can fully grasp the severity of our sin. Though we know it is greater than we can fully comprehend. So, after seeing God in creation and seeing God in his law, David changes his audience. Did you catch it? 
He moves from addressing the reader to who? He addresses God directly. No longer is he concerned to address us. He's moved to address God himself, and he gives four petitions that he asks of God. In verse 12, he says, Lord, declare me innocent from hidden faults. That's an interesting way to start. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. He's so aware of his sin and how severe his sin is that he knows there are sins he's committed that he's not even aware of as he considers God revealing himself. And he says, Lord, declare me innocent from even my hidden faults, not just the obvious ones. In verse 13, he then goes there. Keep back your, your servant from presumptuous sins. That is sins that he does on purpose. He knows that he's liable for that. He knows that he's prone to that. We know, if we're honest with ourselves, we're prone to that as well. We know that what we're about to do is wrong, and we do it anyways. He says, God, keep me back from that, and let them not have dominion over me. Now, that language should take you back to Genesis chapter 4. You remember what happens in Genesis chapter 4. Cain has killed Abel, and God says to, to Cain, Sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. That's what David says here. That's what he prays. Let them not rule over me. Rather, let me rule over them. That's his third petition. And then fourthly, in verse 14, he says, Lord, let the words of my mouth And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Now he knows that his words and his thoughts, his meditations, are not acceptable in God's sight. So he asks God to make them acceptable. Now if you want some help in your prayer life, take verses 12 to 14 and write them down and keep that index card wherever you write them on, wherever you pray. And when you're having trouble praying, which happens all the time, grab that card and pray these verses. And it will really set you in a right posture towards God. Now notice that what David says is not, let me make myself innocent in your sight. What he says is, if you will do these things for me, then and only then shall I be blameless and innocent of great transgression. You've got to do something about my sin. Otherwise, I'm guilty. It's only you acting on my behalf, Lord, that will make me pure and innocent. David doesn't attempt to argue that he's holy or righteous or innocent of anything. He knows he's guilty. He knows he's susceptible to great transgressions. And as we've noted, so do we. So unless he acts on our behalf to redeem us, we stand condemned. That's God's great revelation. That's the good news that God has acted. He's answered David's prayer, yes, I'm acting on your behalf. And he's done that through Jesus Christ. 
How can we know God? That's the question the culture is asking. That's the question your friends are asking. That's the question your cousins are asking. That's the question your family, your co-workers are asking, how can I really know God? David said, here you go. Here's the answer. Look to creation. Find me in God's word. And consider yourself in light of my holiness. And then you will truly know God as David describes him in the last verse. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's our desire to know you truly and deeply. Let us not ignore your word. And let us not gloss over the creation around us. But let us see you and know you and love you. Because of the truth you have revealed about yourself and your creation and you have given to us in your word. That we might know salvation through Jesus Christ and be brought into beautiful communion with the God of all creation. In your holy name we pray. Amen.